ready? to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, borei pri hagafin, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Mi chamocha ba'elim Adonai Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh Nora te'ilot o'osef 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat, la'asot et hashabat la'doratam barit olam, b'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam, Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. My mind to Calvary, where Yeshua bled and died for me. I see His wounds, His hands, His feet. 
Shabbat. Uh, our portion is Teruma. We're in the book of Exodus at uh, chapter 25. And Teruma uh, means contribution. Um, and I always share this about the, the, the title Teruma. It's phonetically very similar to Terua. Terua is trumpet, and Teruma is contribution or offering. Um, and Yeshua one time made the comment to his disciples about how that when you come to make a contribution, don't sound a trumpet. You're doing a teruma, not a terua. And part of the reason why he said that, and there's a play on the phonetics of the word there, uh, was that the temple treasuries actually were called trumpets. They were these large clay jars that were a large bell at the bottom, and then they came up to a narrow neck to where that you could put your contribution in at the top, which was small, but it prohibited you from sticking your hand down into it to collect. So it's a little bit like a contribution box with a small slot where you can put your coins or dollars into it without reaching into the box. And the idea was that you were, when you came, um, don't make a big deal out of making your offering there at the temple. Uh, do it, be humble in, in making your contribution to it. Now, Moses in this portion is calling for a contribution because God has said to him that he wants um, Moses and the children of Israel to build a sanctuary, to build a tabernacle, to be the focal point of him in the camp, and for the, they'll have a rallying point of assembly for those there in Israel. And our portion starts off by naming off all the different detailed materials that is to be used in it and the contribution of not just money, but the contribution of different types of materials. It moves further. It's not too many pages now. It moves further into specifically the construction of three particular pieces of furniture, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the table for showbread, and the lampstand or the menorah. And it's very interesting in this language of how the pattern of these things is shown to um, Moses. Essentially, it was a pattern of literally fire. 
In other words, God took fire and he formed the shape of it so that he could, Moses could see it in a three-dimensional sort of pattern, but it was formed out of fire. None of the other furnishings or other part of the temple was done in this manner. So it sets these three off as being very unique in the construction of the tabernacle. I'm going into some of this detail because it plays into the Hof Torah uh, that we'll, we'll get to in just a few moments. Um, the, one of the most profound questions that is asked by Torah teachers and callers about what we're looking at in the book of Exodus from here on out, with the exception of two chapters that talk about the sin of the golden calf, the rest of the book of Exodus is talking all about the construction of the tabernacle, garments for the priesthood, and to establish the tabernacle there with the children of Israel. Our Hofto portion is going to be about King Solomon getting the stuff together and building the temple that was in Jerusalem. So they're both talking about construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the temple. Well, one of the great questions that is asked about why did God call for this to be done? Uh, you know, God's throne is in heaven. It's beyond the stars. Uh, there's nothing in the earth that can contain the Lord. Uh, yet God said, I want you to build a sanctuary. I want you to build a place for me uh, so I can be in the midst of Israel. And um, different um, theories, different thoughts have come forth from different teachers over the years as to what's the overriding purpose for this? And it, it, it is a fascinating question. The consensus position within Judaism has been uh, given by Moses Maimonides, and he said that what God was trying to do was that the peoples were so involved with idolatrous practices that God needed to, he couldn't just immediately take them to the point where they could worship him directly, <clears throat> that he had to wean them off of idolatrous um, uh, things. And at that time in the ancients, uh, they had multiple gods. They would build temples. And they would have different kinds of sacrifices, and they would have different offices and positions in the various temples. And um, uh, of all these different kinds of gods and, and so forth. And so God, uh, according to Maimonides, well, God called for the ancient uh, children of Israel to build a tabernacle, to build a temple, kind of like what the others are doing uh, with a priesthood, kind of like what the others are doing, but to kind of wean them off and, and get them to follow the Lord. While I find that to be kind of a fascinating argument, I, I quite honestly, I think it's nonsensical. The, there, there's no question that God's motivation toward us is that he loves us greatly. And his desire is to be in fellowship with us. Now, how is God supposed to reach out to us and give us a sense that he's in fellowship with us and that his presence is with us? 
Now, while they're marching around in the wilderness, where well, they got the pillar by cloud, but God's not going to do that forever. That was purely for guiding them through the wilderness to the promised land. But he was thinking about long term. If we get into the land, how are we going to do this for the long term? And so he instructed Moses to build um, this uh, tabernacle, very specific instructions. And in particular, this first portion talks about these three particular furnishings. Again, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Table of Showbread, and the menorah. And it gives very explicit, very specialized instructions with regard to that before he goes into the rest of the courts and the sanctuary walls and all kinds of other things. And you've got to ask yourself the question, what, what was God's purpose really here? And it, it's very clear to me that God wanted to make his presence known. Now, let's step back for a moment and let's, if that be true, let's examine what he's really trying to say to us. Why three furnishings? Why is that first? Well, he's constructing the tabernacle from the inside out. If you follow the rest of the pattern, he starts with the internal things and, and gives directions for it as you build out the tabernacle. Normally, when a man would go and build something, you build the outside and then, and then finish the inside. Uh, but not this case. Not what God is saying here. He is building it from the inside out. <clears throat> all right, so with that kind of set aside for a moment, what is all this detail that has to do with the Ark of the Covenant, Table of Showbread, and with the menorah? Well, in, at the time that it was happening, I'm not sure that everybody could quite grasp, you know, what God had done. But as the years have gone on, uh, we've seen more revealed to us about God. It appears that God is helping to explain God to us. Not only is he making his presence known, but he's revealing some things about himself to us. <clears throat> if you enter into a relationship with someone, you're going to get to know that person better and better and better. And I believe that's part of what's transpiring here. Let me just cut to the chase for you on this. The Ark of the Covenant contains within the, the tablets, the law, um, some of the elements of the um, manna, um, the staff of, the, of Aaron, uh, a mercy seat, and uh, these um, uh, cherubim uh, that are seated on the mercy seat. And... Uh, one of the great controversies uh, about that is about what actually is the shape of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a rectangular box, not all that big, with this lid on it called the mercy seat, and it's got these cherubim on top of it, and uh, their wings are folded in a particular way. <clears throat> the, uh, when you see an artist's rendition today of the Ark of the Covenant, it's a rather simple-looking thing, and uh, they always have a tendency to make the mistake of getting the poles that carry it going the wrong way. They always line the poles up with the, uh, in the rectangular fashion, whereas the poles should be coming straight forward um, for it. 
and some artists make that mistake. But the, the biggest mistake is made about the cherubim. And um, what few people understand for some reason is that cherubim have four wings. They have two wings covering and two wings upward. And according to the, the oral description of the Ark of the Covenant, if I have two cherubim here, two wings covering and two wings upward, it would have formed a seat that was above the, the whole mercy seat and the, the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where it says that God's presence was in uh, the temple, and this is when Moses would go to speak to him. He would speak to that, that, uh, that presentation that God was making about the mercy seat, that he was almost like suspended in the air above the wings um, of the cherubim for it. Now, um, a lot of other artists' rendition, they always make the mistake of not getting four wings. They always do it with two wings and then the different positions and so forth. And um, even the Temple Institute, even they, while they flare the wings upward, they only present two, a, a pair of wings, not four wings, you know, in this process. And so I don't even know that that is an accurate image. It certainly doesn't seem to line up with the oral image here which makes for an interesting thought for us about, again, going back to what's the purpose of this and how does all this fit together for us to make sense? What's God's purpose here? The, um, but it appears that God has a place he wants to sit. He wants to make his presence known, and he uses that to converse with Moses um, from behind the veil. So we seem to have God's presence there. But then he says, no, okay, I want you to make a table of showbread. The, the showbread means the bread of faces. And in fact, the bread that the priests used to make, it would, the shape of the loaf was the profile of a face. It would, you know, had the shape of the nose and the mouth and the chin. And they would shape the bread to sit there so they would face and they would call the bread of faces. Um, and they represented the tribes of Israel. Um, and both in the case of the Ark of the Covenant as well as in the Table of Showbread, the top uh, shelf, the lid part, had the ornamental part of a crown on it, indicating kingship. And so the Ark of the Covenant had that, the Table of Showbread had that. And, and it was as if uh, you were facing toward the mercy seat, table showbread would be on your right um, uh, to, as you were facing there. To your left was the instructions for the creation of the menorah, the seven-branch candelabrum made of one piece of pure gold. And it, formed, and it specifically is a, a, a stand with three branches, three pear branches coming out for a total of seven uh, points for there to be lamps. And uh, they used virgin olive oil as the fuel, and there were the lamps that was the only light that was in the uh, temple sanctuary area there where it is at. Again, as I said to you, 
later on, as we learn in the scripture and additional prophets and teachers come along, we all of a sudden get a certain kind of understanding. For example, that bread of life, the essentials of life, in the table of showbread, tracks to what God did with them about the manna, the bread from heaven, <clears throat> and it uh, uh, represents the countrymen of Israel. And so the Messiah comes forth from the countrymen of the, of the nation, and he's the true bread from heaven, and he's the king. And so all of a sudden, that table of showbread is symbolizing a lot of the work of the Messiah, the Son of God. Whereas the menorah on the other side seems to be symbolizing the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, Isaiah chapter 11 tells us there are seven spirits of God, and it rattles off for each of the lamps. And when you look at the construction of how the menorah is done and so forth, everything is speaking to elements of the Holy Spirit. So we seem to have God manifesting himself in the form of the Father with the Ark, the Covenant, and the Mercy Seat, the Son and the Messiah is illustrated by the kingship that is associated with the table of showbread. And then we have the Holy Spirit is represented by the oil and the lamps and the lampstand itself with its seven branches for the menorah. These are the first elements uh, that are given to us with regard to constructing the tabernacle. So I think in answering the question... Why in the world did God call for the creation of a tabernacle, a temple, and the, the whole system that we have? Is I think God is trying to manifest himself to us. I think he's trying to reveal more about who he is while he seeks to have his presence with us. And it's important to us to have a, a, a place, an understanding. So when people come and ask, they'll say, well, where is your God? Where, where is he at? That you can be able to say, as the ancients did, oh, he's there at the tabernacle. When God uh, wants, to spark, wants to talk to Moses, when Moses wants to talk to God, that, that's where he goes. When the children of Israel assembled there, they're assembling before the Lord. Now, we get to our Hoftor portion. And let me take you now with that. This is, again, King Solomon. And he is uh, in the process of going to build this, the temple in Jerusalem. And our Hoftor portion actually begins in 1 Kings 5. Now, if you look at uh, the normal um, Jewish Publication Society reference in Scripture to where this passage is at, you're going to find it doesn't line up with our normal English Bibles. It'll tell you to go to verse 25 of chapter 5, when in truth, in fact, for our normal Bibles, and this is one of the differences between the Jewish Publication Society Bible and our normal Bibles, is this. And so you're going to want to go to 1 Kings 5, verse 12, will be actually the comparison scripture. And it reads as following, And the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon, just as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a covenant. Now, Hiram is the king up in Lebanon. 
And that was very important with regard to uh, the creation of the temple because uh, Solomon is going to assemble this incredible labor force. Whereas the Torah portion is talking about this incredible amount of materials that came together. Now Solomon's going to talk about this incredible workforce he's going to put together. And let me read for you very briefly. Verse 13, now King Solomon levied forced labors from all of Israel, and the forced labors numbered 30,000 men. And he sent to Lebanon 10,000 a month in, in relays. And they were in Lebanon a month and two months at home. And, uh, and Adoraim, uh, Adoraim, if I pronounce that correctly, was over the forced labors. Now Solomon had 70,000 transporters, 80,000 hewers of stone in the mountain, besides the 3,300 chief deputies. And he put together this incredible team to gather cedars from Lebanon, stone, hewn stone, so he was going to be creating uh, the temple in Jerusalem. And he needed all of these craftsmen and all of these workers to be able to assemble uh, the materials for it. And that's the great comparison, whereas the, in the Teruma portion, it's talking about the materials being gathered. In this portion, it's talking about the labor, the number of people that were um, enlisted by uh, Solomon uh, to put it together. And he goes into, in our portion, into some details about the dimensions of how the temple is to be built. And just like in the uh, Torah portion, where we get all these specifications for how many cubits this is to be long, and how many of this, and how many clasps, and how many curtains, and, and this whole business of how the sanctuary is to be built in two chambers, and veils, and, and so forth, this portion goes into great detail as to the construction of the sanctuary. Bottom line is, when this sanctuary is being built, it's three stories high. It's much larger than that which was the tabernacle. And there's outbuildings that are associated with the building that are on the, on the outer edges, which were chambers where the priests work. Now, so the immediate comparison is we're talking about directions to build uh, the tabernacle and directions to build the temple. They don't match exactly. But yet... They have the same purpose. So I submit to you that rather than uh, chasing our tail so much on all of the details of the thing, it's all pointing to one other major theme, and that is God's presence and revealing uh, the revealing of God uh, to us. And most of the lesson is in the tabernacle because that's what Solomon is following the pattern. Solomon doesn't ever stand up and say, hey, God showed me a pattern in living fire as to how we were to do this. He was given the freedom uh, to do it to make a, a grand temple. And God agreed to it. There was more of the dynamic uh, with him about the son of the king, the son of David, building the temple. Now, David wanted to build the temple. He was able to assemble the materials. However, it was Solomon, the son of David, who actually constructed it. I take you back to the pattern 
of the Ark of the Covenant, but then we have this table of showbread, and it has the same ornamental stuff having to be with the king. And so now we have the son of David who builds um, the um, temple in Jerusalem. One other factor is that the place where the tabernacle was built was highly mobile. It moved around with them throughout the wilderness. And when it came into the land, where there was a place where it found it to be seated, but it wasn't the permanent place for it. It wasn't until King David went and got the elements of the tabernacle and brought them to uh, this piece of ground called the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, this place in Jerusalem that, he, that God then said that he was going to put his name there. Now, just like God's presence, well, that's where you put your name. In other words, it's, that's your house. Um, when you drive by my neighborhood, if you know where I live, as you drive by, you'll go and you'll say, oh, well, that's Monty's house. Uh, or your house, if you drive by your neighborhood. In other words, that becomes the place where you are at, and, and we use your name to designate that place. It's not so much about the structure as much as, oh, that's, that's his place, that's where he's at. And the emphasis is on God's name is in the temple, and therefore that is his place, that's where his presence is at uh, for it. So, to me, what's the real purpose of why God has given us this instruction? Well, actually, um, not only was it a way to begin uh, for the children of Israel and for those in Jerusalem to begin to build their relationship stronger with God, to understand his, his place, to understand that his desire to be with us, to dwell with us, <clears throat> not only that there was a place where we could definitely go to and say, well, our God is here, and that we would recognize God's presence, it also served as a corporate function for all of the assembly to be able to come together and to worship together the Lord. Uh, had he not designated that place, and so how could we have ever accomplished any of the feasts of Israel? Uh, how could we have ever had community worship? Every man would have been doing their own thing. Um, and instead, he wanted us to be able to have that community worship. <clears throat> now, tragically, one of the most devastating things that has happened to Israel, to Israel in its history, is the loss of the tabernacle, the loss of the temple. Um, and it kind of just cast all of the believers in, <clears throat> into the four winds. And it was very difficult for us to come up with a place for God and so forth. Now, Ephraim probably will get into this in a little bit. He'll talk about how that through the work of the Messiah that God's creating the temple in, in our own hearts. So we have that place. We have that indwelling of him like the tabernacle did, like the temple does and so forth for it, and I'm pretty sure he will emphasize that. Ultimately, that's what it's all leading to, but in, even in that case, if I add that in, 
it again goes back to the original purpose. God wants to make his presence known. He wants to reveal himself to us. And he wants us to be able to have a place where we can go individually and corporately as a community to come to worship the Lord at that place. Very important part of our spiritual instruction and that's the reason why the Torah begins to lay this out for the children of Israel. I might add that the rest of the book of, of um, Exodus is going to be talking all about uh, the temple, about the priesthood, all of the elements that were associated with it, with the exception of two chapters, and they'll be coming up where those two chapters will talk about the sin of the golden calf, and it's kind of interspersed in the middle of that. Uh, for it. The book of Numbers will address that again as well. So for the rest of us in, in our Torah portions that we're following this year, we're now introducing the subject of the tabernacle and the temple and its meaning to us in our faith. So that's our lesson for this week. Shabbat Shalom to all of you and look forward to Ephraim's comments. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, to chapter 8. Hold your finger there at verse 1, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time once again to uh, dig into your word, to be encouraged and strengthened by the words of your Son and the uh, testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. And Father, I pray that uh, the scriptures would just come alive once again for us this week as we are encouraged, as we uh, complete this week, looking to your word, your instruction, and for this Torah portion. We love you, we bless you, and thank you in your Son Yeshua that we pray. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is Terumah, which is actually starting to get into the entire section of the book of Exodus, where we start talking about the construction of the tabernacle, the temple of God, basically where God is going to dwell and reside with the children of Israel in the camp, uh, in the midst of Israel. This is where the pillar of cloud by day, fire by night will reside over the tabernacle, and that this is basically creating the, a house for the Lord. It's, uh, I love as we get into this section, it's different from all the rest of the book of Exodus, of course, we're talking about the children of Israel leaving Egypt, but what it's continually doing is it's continuing to show the character of God, His desire to dwell with the children of Israel. Now, this has direct parallels, of course, to the fact that the Messiah himself was sent to the earth. He came in a form of a temporary dwelling, that was his physical human body, and came to dwell with his people. He came and walked this earth. As we look at the testimony of Yeshua, we see the pattern of the tabernacle being fulfilled by him coming to the earth. The tabernacle in the wilderness was temporary. It was made of temporary, it could be taken down, it could be put back up, it was made with all of these curtains and all these things, and it was never meant to be the permanent resting place of God and His glory in the camp with the children of Israel. We do know that the temple was to come later in Jerusalem and that that would be the place in which God would dwell and His glory would come and dwell amongst the children of Israel. However, even that was temporary as well because the temple doesn't exist anymore even today. 
And so we see this pattern and this parallel of the place where God dwells or resides. Sometimes God will even put his presence in a temporary place. Some of us like to think of God as this uh, all-powerful, all-knowing being, and that surely He is greater than all of us. And so some people have trouble wrapping their brain around the idea of God actually manifesting Himself in some sort of temporary, weakened form. See, the, the Messiah, there, there is much debate in the, in the Hebrew roots messianic movement about the deity of Yeshua himself, where people say that he was, yes, surely he was sent by God, but that he simply was a man or that he wasn't divine. And it, I like, we get into these debates sometimes, and to me, in my heart, my opinion is there is absolutely no question that Yeshua was divine. Only he could give a sacrifice that forgives sin. Only God could do that. You can't sacrifice some other man or animal that gives that forgiveness that only comes from the Lord. And that Yeshua was, I believe, to be divine, even though it was a physical temporary body, it was the very power of God, the soul of God, the spirit of God in residing in that physical body but it was temporary. It really was. This pattern should not be too hard to understand in the fact of why in the world would God dwell in some temporary tent in the wilderness amongst the children of Israel? That thing was temporary as well. It's, yeah, it was made from, from beautiful, precious materials with, and filled with gold and with uh, all kinds of amazing textiles, and it was a, the most gorgeous tent you've ever seen in your entire life. But it still was temporary, made from, you know, uh, things mined from the earth. Why would God decide to dwell there? Well, the key is, is what is the true character and the heart of God? His heart was to dwell with the people. If his desire is to dwell with the people, then he wouldn't care by what vessel he happens to reside in because he's wanting to be with the people. It's the same, it's the same concept where you, if you have somebody that is desiring to go on a very special trip and you want to go to, let's say you want to go to the land of Israel and you want to go there and you want to go on a trip, but maybe, you know, where you're going to sleep or where you're going to stay, you're not going to stay at the nicest hotels or you're not going to sleep in the warmest of places. You're going to sleep on the ground and you're not going to be very comfortable in certain places and certain conditions. Well, is that going to dissuade you from going to the land of Israel? Well, if your heart truly desires it, then no. It's not going to matter what your dwelling place or temporary uh, surroundings are and what accommodations you might be sleeping in each night. If your desire is to be there, then you're going to go there no matter what. That's actually the character of God when it comes to His desire to dwell with Israel and with His people and with His creation. It doesn't matter what the, what, what the temporary uh, accommodations might be. He wants to be with the people. That's what his heart is. That's his heart's desire to be with the children of Israel and to dwell with us. Now, we can sit here and question why that would be the case, because we're not the best people. We're inherently sinful. We, make a, we seem to make a mess of anything and everything that we possibly can. We're unclean by all uh, manners and, and rules of measure. Uh, we've broken every commandment, killed every prophet, done all kinds of terrible things. Why would God want to dwell with us? Well, that just goes to show the character of God. And God also came to the earth 
in the form of a man, in Yeshua, in his son. And he would desire to dwell with the people. That's kind of the, I mean, that's the short teaching on the whole idea of the Messiah came in a temporary dwelling, which is the same pattern of a temporary dwelling that he dwelled with the children of Israel. All right, case closed, done. There's your parallel right there. Well, I want to dig a little bit deeper into our Torah portion, of course, in the nature of what is being built. Now, in our Torah portion, we're going to talk about the offering that is given by the children of Israel to give certain materials for the construction of the tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle. And in our Torah portion, we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, the menorah. We're going to talk about some of the coverings of the uh, sanctuary where those items and those furnishings will reside. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to go into other deeper things, talking about the garments of the high priest, as well as all the other uh, items and articles that are built in the outer court and what the true nature of the construction of the tabernacle is going to be. But the thing that I want to point out and the thing I want to focus on is the idea of that offering that God commanded the children of Israel to make. It specifically says in our Torah portion that God spoke to Moses. Now, I should also say this while this is, uh, while we're at it. Moses is on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, and is being spoken to by God and is giving the pattern of what all of these things are to be and how they are to be built and what they are going to do. All of the things that are being described in our Torah portion for the next couple of weeks actually didn't get built or get made or get done until a couple of chapters toward the end of the book of Exodus. So right now, God is speaking to Moses and saying, go and tell the children of Israel, take up an offering. The actual giving of the offering won't be done in, except for in a couple of chapters later. So just to clarify the, uh, the dialogue here between God and Moses. And God tells Moses, and he says, Tell the children of Israel, anyone who has a willing heart to give to the tabernacle, they were to have a stirring inside themselves, in their heart, to be willing to give and to make the contribution to the house of the Lord. This is something that is, digs into the idea of being whatever is on the inside of each person is much more important than what is on the outside of the person. I spoke last week talking about it's not about judging according to outside appearances as to how we should judge, but it was what is on the inside of one's heart that is how you make a righteous judgment as to how you are to judge one another within our fellow, from, with our fellow brethren, citizen, fellow citizens within our community. It's not about what's on the outside, but it's what's on the inside that counts. And so in the case of this offering being given, it's the same case. It's not about what is being given by which person. You will never see an instance and I certainly hope that this wasn't the case with some people, that some of the rich of the children of Israel that had gold were coming and were bringing gold for the construction of the articles and elements of the tabernacle. Were they somehow more important that they brought the gold versus the people that brought the goat's hair or the, some of the linen that was used to weave into the textiles of the fabrics? Was that was it more important that the gold, because the gift was more valuable? In the context of our Torah portion and in the description that comes from the book of Exodus, that answer is no. What was important was 
who was stirred in their heart to give, whatever they had to give. The person that brought the uh, Tachash skins is not more important or less important than the people that brought the ram skins dyed red or the ones that brought the bronze, which we, we find out later happened to be the, many of the women who had bronze mirrors are the ones who contributed a great amount of the bronze. Does that make their contribution more or less than anyone else's contribution? The answer is no, because it was not about the outside appearance of what was being brought. It was what was on the inside of their willing heart to give. This goes and actually uh, kind of spreads out into a whole other concept when it comes to any time that you're hanging out with anybody and you are uh, spending time with any person in any walk of life, no matter what, is it, would you rather spend time with somebody that is incredibly skilled and, and intelligent beyond all measure, but the person is a jerk and has a terrible attitude? Or the person who is maybe a simpleton, Maybe they don't know a whole lot. Maybe they're not all that wise. But man, do they just have the best attitude in the entire world. Who would you rather hang out with? The answer is very simple. The latter is, should be everybody's answer. Because you are looking for the, the time and the quality to be with somebody who just has a good attitude, who has a, 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 just a joy, joy in their life, who just has peace in their heart. And not the person who's a jerk and who's bitter and who doesn't, even though the person might be wise, you could learn incredible things from that person. Who would you rather spend the time with? It's the person with the kind heart. That's who you'd rather spend the time with. That's what's important when it comes to all of these things and this idea and this concept of somebody who has the spirit of the Lord stirring within their heart. The people who brought the contributions were the people who were desiring to be with the Lord, love the Lord, and who, who, who loved God and wanted to, to see this tabernacle built. didn't matter what they brought. There were some in the camp that did not bring anything, that did not have a willing heart, that did not bring any contribution. That's because those were the people that were selfish. Perhaps they wanted to hold on to their gold, hold on to their bronze, hold on to some of these other things of value, and they did not have a willing heart to give. I guarantee you these were the people that were probably some of the first to die in the wilderness because they did not desire to truly follow what God was commanding them to do and to dwell with God. They did not have a willing heart. This is what we should look for in all people now, to our particular couple of passages that we're going to talk about here with our Torah portion, I'd like to point out the fact that the Messiah himself had one of the kindest hearts of anybody that's ever walked the earth, perhaps the greatest. He was the one who was the wisest to know when to have uh, peace, kindness, compassion upon someone. He also knew when it was, when it was time to flip tables or, or flog somebody as well. This is the Messiah being the righteous judge that always knowing what was the righteous or right thing to do at any point in time. But what I'd like to point out is I'd like to point out one of these first uh, healings that he took place, one of the most well-known healings that he did that is recorded for us in detail in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. But I'm going to go ahead and read here from Matthew chapter 8. And this is the one where, of course, the Messiah is healing the leper. This is the, almost like the, this is one of those quintessential miracles. It's one of the first ones that he did and performed. And it's one of the ones that ties directly to 
the signs that God gave to Moses, and it ties directly to one of the signs and the miracles that the rabbis of Judaism even say only the Messiah can cure the leper. So let's. So this is one of those really important miracles that we really need to see and dig in and understand what's going on when God did this miracle. A couple of verses here in Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 1. We need to come down from the mountain. This is after the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he says this, Great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Yeshua put out his hand, touched him, and saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Yeshua said to him, See that you tell no one, but go on your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. All right, the healing of the leper. This will tie into several other Torah portions, talking about leprosy when we get to the book of Leviticus. And so we'll probably come back and touch on this story several other times in the course of the Torah cycle. But the point that I want to bring out is this, the Messiah replying to him and saying, I am willing, be cleansed. He could have, the Messiah could have led off with anything else, like any sort of other stipulations to the leper saying, well, you need to walk uprightly before me, follow my commandments. Are you willing to do that? Yes, I'll do that. Okay, now that you, now you will be cleansed. The Messiah shows the immediate willingness of his heart to do good for this person immediately, without question, without stipulations. And it was a stirring within his heart. The Holy Spirit, I believe, resided inside the body of the Messiah. And it was the same stirring within his heart to immediately desire to heal the leper as it was the first people inside their hearts wanting to give the contribution and the offerings to the building of the tabernacle. It was the very, it's that same stirring within one's spirit. This is, a, again, like I've said before, looking at the, on the inside of what truly the heart of the Messiah was. And it was one that was willing to, to heal to cleanse, to, to, to do what is right in, without question, without hesitation. This is the same thing that God desires to see in us. One might say, when you're talking about a leper, first of all, in, in the ancient, uh, ancient times, first century, these were people that were second-class citizens. These were people that you didn't touch. You, didn't, you, you avoided them at all costs. You avoided them like the plague. And how, how much... Uh, effort does it take somebody, some of us sometimes to go and just immediately do something for somebody like that. We are so hesitant to even do, some, do good for somebody because we are so focused on these outside appearances. When clearly in the heart of this leper, what was the first testimony that was given of the leper? He worshiped him. The leper understood who he was looking at. He was seeing God in the flesh, and he worshipped him, worshipped God. He called him, and Lord, are you willing you can make me clean? He sees the heart of the person when the rest of us might see the outward appearance of the person, and surely that person is consumed with sin. Surely this person will never be clean, and surely this person uh, is not, uh, that no one should have anything to do with him. The Messiah proved everybody wrong by this miracle right here. After he comes off the mountain, after all these people are following him, and this is the first healing that he does because of that heart being so willing to do what is right. I commend us to have that same willing heart in everything that we do when it comes to doing good for the stranger, doing good by our neighbor, 
by, for a friend in the community, whatever it might be, because that's the example that the Messiah set, and that's the example that the children of Israel set when God gave the command to build His house in the first place. Once again, it's what's on the inside that matters the most. Now turn with me to the book of Hebrews, to chapter 8. There, this is where we have descriptions in the book of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews describes some of the aspects of the tabernacle. In fact, this won't be the last time that we uh, turn to uh, these pa- passages here in the middle of the book of Hebrews. The thing that I want to point out, and uh, specifically for this Torah portion, is this, is at the beginning here at verse 8. Now, we are going to, in the construction of the tabernacle in our Torah cycle, and next week we're going to talk a great deal about the high priest, and it will be my, uh, my goal to bring out all the aspects of how the Messiah himself is our high priest, our mediator between us and God. And that, but uh, this passage references the work of the Messiah as the high priest. But I want to point out one other thing that seriously ties to the way that all of this tabernacle and all of this instruction is being given to Moses in our portion. Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 1, says this, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed When he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. This is, of course, tying in the covenant that the Messiah has given to us through his blood, through his life and his testimony, and relating it to the covenant by which God has made with Israel. Now, I don't believe in a God that breaks His covenants. Whenever covenants are made with God and man, they are everlasting covenants. That is what they are, and that's the way they are described in the Torah. And that just as this specifically said, that there are priests who are offering gifts according to the law. This is how it should be done. According to the law, gifts are offered to the Lord. We make sacrifices. Anything that the Messiah did did not come and replace those things, did not do away with those things. It was the very law of the altar that sanctified Yeshua to be the appropriate sacrifice, and you can't do away with the thing that sanctifies the sacrifice. You cannot say one sacrifice is greater than the altar or vice versa. So that's not what I'm pointing out in this passage. The thing I do want to point out is this, is the idea that Moses was shown a pattern of heavenly things. This is what was being built here in the tabernacle. And that there is so much more importance, and I cannot stress enough, my brother Rico is going to love to hear me say this, I cannot stress enough the importance of understanding the tabernacle as a dwelling place of God and knowing that as a part of our faith, understanding how God dwells with us and within us. The tabernacle is extremely important to us. The entire last half of the book of Exodus is devoted to it, the construction of this tabernacle. 
And information in Exodus is repeated multiple times that is so important for us to understand the elements of the tabernacle, what their purpose was, what the meaning of them are behind, because all of it has to do with how God dwells with us and within us, within our hearts. Because what is being described here, and this is sort of the, this is sort of, this might sound a little sci-fi to some people, but this is really what, what's going on here. This is the, the pattern of the tabernacle in heavenly places is the pattern of what has been created physically in us, and it truly is the connection between the supernatural and the natural, between the, between the physical and the divine, that God dwells with us, that we are more than just our physical bodies, our physical creatures, but we are spiritual creatures created by God with everlasting souls that go on beyond what we can physically see. Now, you start talking about that, that in that way, and it starts, sounds like I'm, I'm starting to get really super spiritual on you. And it's not that there's nothing wrong. We have to understand the parallel between physical and spiritual. We are both physical beings and spiritual beings. And that the pattern of even the tabernacle that was created, there is a tabernacle in heaven where God resides. There is an ark that is in heaven that is the throne of God. There is a table with bread on it. There is a menorah with light. There are altars of incense. And there are all of these things that are in heaven where God dwells and God resides. There was also physical things of the, in the same pattern that were created for God to dwell with the children of Israel. We have to realize the divine power that God has and the divine connection that we have to Him and to creation. Many of us become too naturalistic, too, too, it's our physical life is when it's over, then there's, there's nothing more to, to life. That is the talk of someone who is not spiritual, who is not a believer, because what we understand as believers is that we are spiritual beings and that God is spiritual and all powerful and, and all of the, we have to understand the connection between the spiritual and the physical. The tabernacle and the study of the tabernacle is one of the most tangible subjects that we can understand that parallel. It's one of those things where it's like, this was what was seen in heaven. This is what was built on earth. And if we understand the way it's function on earth, then we can understand the connection to heavenly and spiritual things. All of us are trying to seek God, seek the divine, seek to know what is beyond this physical life. The tabernacle actually is a great pattern and area of study that will actually show you more of those things. You will learn what it means to have a clean heart, to, for God to reside in it, if you study and understand the tabernacle, the role of the high priest, how God's glory dwelt within that, that place, where exactly God's glory dwelt in that place, what was the intimate um, nature of the Holy of Holies versus the holy place versus what the work and the service of the priests do. Understanding all of those things teach us about the divinity that resides inside the hearts of each person where God resides, where we have all prayed to the Lord and prayed for Him to come and enter into our hearts and to be with us and dwell with us and guide our lives. The understanding of the tabernacle is paramount to us understanding the power and the divinity of God, all because the pattern is, the, 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 is connected between not only heavenly things, 
but physically th physical things as well. So I really want to bring that out, and I want that to be sort of, that's a good primer for understanding why we might go into depths of study about a tabernacle that doesn't exist anymore, or furnishings that don't exist anymore, and sacrifices that don't happen on a daily basis anymore. Because the understanding of those things are to be understood by the believer who is building their spiritual house and their tabernacle in their heart in an appropriate way for the Lord to dwell in their lives as well. That's what we need to understand. Now I want to bring up a uh, story, and I'm going to conclude with this, a connection to our Torah portion that perhaps is one of the more obscure connections to the Torah portion, but it's something that just cannot, it, it pops off the page when you're sitting there and you're reading it. In the construction of the tabernacle, there's a great number of things. There's all these curtains that are made. There's lots of different numbers. There's, there's uh, measurements of cubits and widths and lengths and all these, and number of curtains and clasps and all these different things that are go into the creation of the tabernacle. You could sit there and just say, man, these are very exact uh, diagrams on how to build and construct this thing. In fact, it's so detailed that people can create pretty accurate replicas of the tabernacle itself. Well, when you see some of those numbers, some of them kind of stand out to you. There's one set of curtains that it was uh, made and, and constructed and put together um, with the tabernacle. And what that is, is that is the um, curtains that were all put together of the finely woven linen, all of the beautiful textiles, the scarlet, the blue, uh, and the purple material that was all woven together. And it was all sewn into curtains that were then connected together and then clasped together. Well, what actually is in, in our Torah portion, it describes that five curtains are coupled into one section, five curtains are coupled or sewn together in another section, and then those two panels are then connected together by a whole series of clasps. You see ten curtains and you see, five, you see it separated, five on this side, five on the other. So with that said, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Because instantly in my heart, in my mind, instantly I see those numbers and it instantly recalls another story and one of the teachings of the Messiah. And that is the parable of the ten virgins. So let us take this time now with this Torah portion. Let's take a look at that parable. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 1, it says this, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But when the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our oil is going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us, and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready and ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming." Here we have the parable, the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. Five had, were prepared for the coming of the king. 
Five were not prepared. Five thought they could uh, operate on their own, uh, their own power, their own need. Uh, everything was going to be okay when it came time that the bridegroom was coming. He delayed, and then he came at night. Then they did not have the oil. And the, the ones could not compromise what they did and what they had to give to uh, the oil to uh, light their lamps and to be prepared for the bridegroom to come that they then could not give their oil to the other ones. And they were, and this is the lesson. It's a simple lesson about preparedness. Be ready always. When you go and travel, even if rain's not in the forecast, you might as well carry an umbrella with you. Something kind of like that. That's a good lesson to be had. But the thing that I want to point to, once again, is to, to sort of wrap up this whole idea and this concept, truly of the hearts of the people, the hearts of the people. It was not the matter of that the that they the oil, you know, they, they had oil and they were, were prepared, and so they had lamps, and so that they were ready for the, the bridegroom to come. They already in their hearts were ready and eager for him to come, no matter when he came. And they were ready and they were willing in their hearts to be ready to receive the bridegroom whenever he might come. And they were the ones that were allowed and were brought in to the house, brought into the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Some are allowed to go in and dwell with the Lord. Others will be left out. That is the whole idea and the concept of God building His house, building His tabernacle so that He could dwell with us, and His desire for all people to go in to be with Him and to dwell with Him in His house, especially when they're invited in. Many times in all of our um, commandments of the offerings, of the appointed times, God is inviting us to be with Him into His house, to dwell with Him at each of the appointed times. We're, to, we're told to have a holy convocation that, that we are to, to give the example and the idea that we are celebrating these feasts with the Lord, with Him. And when we go to do these feasts, we have to prepare for them. We have to be ready to do them. We can't just willy-nilly decide, oh, maybe, uh, oh yeah, now I'll get around to celebrating the feast. No, whenever you keep Passover, Shavuot, Sukkot, any of the feasts of the Lord, you have to have a preparedness and a willingness in your hearts to go and be a part of those feasts before they come. Because God has invited us in. He has set the anniversary. He has set the appointed time for us to come in and to dwell with Him and to be with Him at those times. But if we didn't prepare our lamps, in the case of Sukkot, if you didn't make sure you got a tent, you got a place to sleep, you got a place to stay, a, a way to stay warm, food to eat so that you could, you know, be nourished for the duration of the week. If you don't plan ahead, you are not going to be able to celebrate that feast. In fact, you might miss out on that feast because you weren't prepared well enough. These, this is the idea and the teaching of preparedness. But again, all of it goes back to truly what is inside your heart. Do you have a desire to dwell and to celebrate these feasts with the Lord? Do you desire to be a part of that and to be included in the feast and to be welcomed in into the house of God? Then prepare and be ready for it. Have a willing heart to be ready to do it at a moment's notice when he says, somebody bring me an offering. You're ready to bring an offering right then and there because your heart was stirred, is tuned to the Holy Spirit to respond to God in that way. 
We are not to be like the foolish ones the, 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 who can, we, we can just decide whenever or uh, the, the people that when offerings were given. This is the other thing. I'm, I'm skipping ahead though, but I do want to conclude with this. I'm skipping ahead. At the end of the book of Exodus, when the offerings start to be uh, brought and it's actually describing, there was a point in time in which they had to say, we have enough, no more offering needs to be brought. The person that delayed, the person that had something to give, but they, were, they thought about it. They hesitated just a little too much. And they're like, okay, yeah, I do want to contribute. And then the door shuts. Moses says, no more is needed. No more gold is needed. No more silver is needed. We have everything we need to build. And so then you're sitting there holding the gold in your hand that you wanted to give. And now that gold doesn't get to be a part of the tabernacle. And you don't get to feel like a part of you was put into the construction of God's house because you weren't ready. You weren't ready for the call. You weren't ready. You weren't willing at that time. We need to be the ones who are prepared and ready for that call, ready to give when the, when, when the call is and says, we need an offering. Anyone with a willing heart, please give, please offer. This is what we need to do. This is what the Lord is doing. We need to be ready and willing when that time comes. And that call came in Exodus in the time, and there were those that were stirred in their hearts to give and to make that donation. And when the Messiah walked this earth, and when somebody came and asked him, he was ready and willing to heal immediately. We too need to be ready and willing to do for our brother, to do for the Lord when that call comes. Let us prepare our hearts. Let us store up oil spiritually and be ready for the call that comes from the Lord. That way we can count ourselves among the wise and not among the foolish. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time once again for this Torah portion. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us in our most holy faith, that you would continue to lead us and guide us with your Holy Spirit. And Father, may the words continue to uh, edify, strengthen us in all the things that we do. Uh, Father, thank you for the opportunity and the time to minister. Father, I pray that you just continue to uh, heal those that are sick at this time, Lord, who are fighting off colds, myself included. And Father, I thank you uh, once again for making your word come alive and is so powerful and uh, encouraging, Lord. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you on this Sabbath day. We give you all the honor, the glory, and praise in this place. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.